Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining me again on the BIPOC Outside podcast. I'm Chris Cromwell, and today we're sitting down with Lanrick Bennett Jr. Lanrick is the bicycle mayor of Toronto, Canada's largest city. And he's got extensive experience in active transportation policy, urban design, and placemaking. So let's get into it, shall we? But before we get into it, as you know, this show doesn't happen without our title sponsor, Norco Dirt Series. The Dirt Series is hosting weekend-long mountain bike camps throughout Canada and the U.S. in some of the most exceptional ride locations. Whether you're a new rider or wanting to advance your skills, the Dirt Series offers gender-specific, co-ed, and youth-focused camps. Their fall series is open, and they have a promotion on -on one-on-one training. Check them out at dirtseries.com or find their partner link on our website. Lamarck, thank you so much for joining me. How are you today? It's a good day. I'm doing well. Thank you so very much for this opportunity to have a conversation and have a bit of fun talking with someone thousands of miles away, but it feels very close seeing your wonderful self in my screen. But yeah, looking forward to, to a wonderful conversation. Awesome. I've been looking forward to this. So you're in Toronto. Were you born and raised there? I was born just outside of Toronto in a city called Mississauga. Spent a good 20 years there. But my parents, they're both Jamaican immigrants. They moved to Toronto back in the 1970s and landed in a little neighborhood called Corsa Italia. So this was Toronto's original little Italy. My dad used to tell me stories about going to the market on Sunday mornings, and he would hit the main street in Corsa Italia's St. Clair. And he would tell me about the fact that he would walk down the street with these little nonas as they're walking to mass. (laughs) And he'd be surrounded and my dad wasn't super tall. He was like five, seven, five, eight, but these little nonas were all like four foot nothing. And he would just be this, this sea of little Italian grandmothers going to mass and this taller than tall black man walking to the market. He always enjoyed that. But yeah, not very far from Toronto. Being here now in the city with my wife and kids for the last 15 years. It's the capital of of Ontario, the largest city in Canada. It's a crazy place, but we call it home and we love it. Yeah. So how did how did you get your started in cycling? Where did you where did it all come together for you? Oh man, I guess, you know, I could say And I'm sure everyone, you know, talks about the fact that they were a kid, parents buy them a bike, you ride around. And yes, I had that world in Mississauga and was very happy with that. But I completely threw away my bike, you know, when I was 16, I got my license and it was all about the car. And I drove a a wonderful 83 Oldsmobile Cutlass Supreme that my father had given to me. And that was my vehicle of choice for many a years until meeting my wife and moving to Toronto and spending a good decade on public transit. But my second jump into cycling was due to my daughter. So eight-year-old, full of all sorts of energy. And my daughter was very used to taking the bus and streetcar with me to her school. And she decided one morning to basically tell my wife and I that I'm going to ride to school next week. And that was it. That She had a bike. Her, her brother also had a bike. But an eight-year-old, nine-year-old riding to school was just like, I don't know if you can do that, baby. I think one of us needs to at least be with you. My wife is a cyclist. She's been riding for years and rides to her work. She's a nurse manager at Princess Margaret Hospital, but she leaves the house at 6.45 in the morning. So it's kind of, dad, you're going to have to go get yourself a bike. So a week later, I've got myself a bike. I am taking my daughter around the neighborhood in the parks. I'm relearning how to navigate our streets as a person on a bike. And yeah, she pulled me in and it has been a continuous love affair since. She unfortunately doesn't ride anymore. So we are doing great. My my daughter and I are riding last for a good three, four months. Everything is going wonderful. It's the beginning of spring. Our infrastructure here in Toronto is like many big cities where you've got places that say that they're bike friendly, 
you've got painted lines as bike lanes, and then you have a few choice areas that may have separated bike infrastructure. On our street, we are all about painted lines. So my daughter would be in the paint, I would be out in the street, and I would be that buffer. And of course, as a parent, you're like, yeah, I'll protect my kid. And, you know, your mindset is something will hit me before it hits my kid. And that will be the nanosecond that they need to get out of the way completely just bonkers. But that's what us parents do. So a spring morning, my daughter and I are riding to school. Everything is fine. I get her to class, lock her bike up. As I am riding to work, I pass an ambulance. And, you know, there's definitely something that has happened close to her school. I would not find out until later that afternoon that a dad, similar to myself, he had two kids, was killed. Basically the opposite route of my daughter and I. We missed his crash by about 10, 15 minutes. Picked up my daughter, explained to her what had happened that morning. And Zoe lasted for about two and a half, three more months. And then she went on strike. And I mean, literally just, here's the bike, here's my helmet. Thank you very much, daddy. I love that we get to ride, but it's too dangerous for you. Not dangerous for her, not too dangerous that she might, but dad's being killed here. You could be him. There's reason not for me to ride. My daughter wrote to our counselor. She wrote to our provincial or MPP. She wrote to our federal representative. She did this continuously for weeks. Finally had to actually send a letter to the mayor just to get a response from our counselor. But even with that, it was, you know, kind of that cut and paste reply of, we hear you. Thank you so much. We're going to do something. They haven't done anything. And for the limited upgrade where Douglas Crosby is his name, the limited upgrade of infrastructure that they built where he was killed, there is a piece of concrete and he was making a right-hand turn and there's no connected tissue. So, so it's going to happen again. Like that, that's, I think even in her head at nine, 10 years old, she knew, what are you guys doing? So we're four years past that incident. Zoe has not been on a bike. She has no intention of being on a bike. She will take public transit. She doesn't like being in a car, but refuses to ride her bike until she sees action. Literally, and I'm looking at my street right now, which is, it's a two and a half kilometer corridor that has paint from one edge to the next. Seven different schools are on this corridor and all of it is paint. Oh so God. a good 3,500 students potentially could ride bikes. They won't because you're just on this, you're on a throughway, basically. Yeah. And these little kids, these babies, ultimately, they understand the risk. Oh why, my gosh, yes. yes. Why can't our elected representatives understand that. I think the big, you know, and I'm a political junkie on top of me being a cycling advocate. You know, the big piece is political will. We are, we, and I say this in a, in the big, you know, tent world, we're car centric, we're car dependent. And in any way, shape or form that you as a political entity decide to say in as many words that we need to create safer streets, you know, the NIMBYs start to perk up the ears go, well, what's that mean? How many parking spots are you taking away? How slow do I have to drive? What are you going to take away from my street? And, you know, the concept of our streets not being publicly owned is so, so backwards ass. <laughs> like this infrastructure is for all of us to be able to use, enjoy, get around in. It's not just the purview of cars. And drivers on our streets, you should be able to walk, you should be able to ride, you should be able to take public transit. I'm not even I'm not even anti-car, but I am definitely pro-safety. And in any way, shape, or form that we can slow down vehicles and yeah, make it difficult. That's okay. That's you're riding around in at least a 25, maybe 3,000 pound steel box. If I need to slow you down by, you know, 10 kilometers or so, I am speaking metric, not miles per hour. But yeah, if I can slow you down a bit, 
just to make sure that vulnerable road users are safer then, yeah, I think that oh, that's yeah. okay. But, you know, just coming back to that question, there's no political will. They are, they get elected, you know, they'll fill a pothole, they'll do their photo op, and then it's, I've got to be elected again in, in another. So I better just, status quo is good. Let's keep it. And I shouldn't blanket that to all elected officials because, and especially here in Toronto, and we'll probably talk a bit more about this, there's a lot of patchwork when it comes to the good infrastructure. So you go downtown and you're able to visit the museums and our sporting arenas and libraries. And, you know, if you're living downtown already, you can literally leave your home, leave your condo apartment, and you're on a protected piece of infrastructure that can take you to work, take you to the park, take you, you know, to fun. I mean, it's pretty amazing. And as soon as you get outside of that core, and I'm literally on the other side of the river. We have one protected bike lane. It's called Destination Danforth. And it's a wonderful stretch. It's a six kilometer stretch, almost taking you into, actually, it's now taking you into Scarborough. They've just increased it. Absolutely amazing. But there's no north-south connector to get you up there. So it's there, but it isn't. It's not, we don't, we're missing those connected pieces. The grid is not, and that is kind of, that's a lot of the fight that I'm having right now in my advocacy is how do we start to connect all of these potential wins for cycling, for people that are pedestrians, for people that are using mobility devices. So it's not just about bikes there's these corridors can be used by so many people that aren't driving yeah i well i have i want to go 12 different places i want to talk a little bit about that nimbyism and so you're mm. the former managing director at 880 and first yes. I just want to, for our listeners what is 880 okay so 880 cities is the concept of 880 cities is how do you what would your city be like if you had the lens of an eight-year-old and the lens of an 80-year-old. If you can incorporate a city to work for those two extremes, that's a city that we would all want to be in. So an equitable city, a safe city, a city that allows for movement that keeps you prioritized as the safe one without you having to be in a bubble. So that is protective bike lanes, that is lowering speeds on streets, but that's also being able to have access to a public park, uh, regardless if you're walking in or rolling in on a wheelchair or having to use a mobility device. It's seeing the world and knowing that it can work regardless of your age, a city for all ages. So I spent two years at 880 Cities, a fantastic organization, really focused on what happens from the street and then beyond. So if you can make the street work, then you can, the sidewalks connect to that and what connects you from there, your parks, your businesses, your libraries, all of those other facets of being in a city, having an 880 lens is such a key part to the many puzzles that make our cities work or should make our cities work. Absolutely. Yeah. So we hear this all the time. It's a, you know, I don't want to say a fight. It's a conversation that is active in my home community about moving a bike lane, right? And mm -hmm. what about the parking? And how are my customers going to get in and out? And like, what are some of the things that you have learned the truths about how bike lanes improve streets? I'm going to use Destination Danforth as, as a key example. The Danforth, again, it's a six, almost seven kilometer, two laned, uh, East to West Street, very well used, uh, very busy, very fast, and very prone to crashes. Cars on cars and cars on people, whether they're pedestrians or on bikes. And back in 2018, we had a pop-up complete street. 880 Cities was actually one of the key partners in that. For 36 hours, they were able to create a an example of what a complete street would look like. So bike lanes were put in and seating for restaurants were put in and play areas were put in and you whittled down the east-west drive for cars just having one lane. 
no parking at all. This was kind of this magical utopia of being able to showcase what could work. 36 hours later, it's all packed up, all the paint is gone, and it's literally put on a shelf at the city and at 880 cities. We have the pandemic now that kind of pops into play. And ring, <laughs> the city calls up and they're like, hey, remember that project that we we did a few years ago? Yeah, you want to dust that off and let's take a look at it. As much as it may not be in the digital pages of Wikipedia, that six kilometers of the Danforth was transformed into a complete street in just under 10 weeks. From the city basically getting the plans to council approving its implementation and transportation coming together and building this out. It's amazing how quickly things can be put forth when you know that it's the right idea and the right facet. Getting right into how businesses took it. I think a lot of them were just like, oh my gosh, this is going to be the death of us. I mean, we're already dealing with the pandemic. Now you're taking away all of our parking. What are we to do? And, you know, for those first few weeks, just seeing cyclists zipping on by it, you know, you almost were like, oh man, these restaurants and businesses, they may have been right. And then you saw what we all knew, a lot of, you know, cycling advocates understood is as soon as you give this safe opportunity for people to be able to ride past your store in the morning, amazingly enough, they want to stop by after work. They want to come by on the weekend. They want to bring their kids on their bikes with them so that they can pop into your store. And, you know, if you come to Destination Danforth on any day, doesn't really matter, but I'll maybe just focus on the weekends. You would be amazed at seeing the families that are now riding, you know, east to west on the Danforth, mom and dad and you've got training wheels on the kids they pop their bikes off of the bike lane they lock them up and now they are stuck wanting to be stuck in the businesses that are on the danforth the bike lane has actually made the businesses sticky for a completely different subset of customer base at the same time, and Destination Danforth, the bike lane setup that we've done on the Danforth is a bit different. It did not eliminate parking. So it actually incorporated sidewalk, protected bike lane, reduced parking, and then lanes going east and west. So we've allowed for everyone, regardless how you get to where you need to get to, you can take this one street and do it. But for cyclists, for people on bikes, it's an added bonus of safety and security, knowing that you've got these protective pieces, concrete in, in some of them, bowlers in the other, we've got planters as well, but there's a complete separation from you and vehicles that are definitely traveling at at least 30 or 40 kilometers an hour. But for the businesses, and I don't think I'm boasting on the fact that they haven't had it as good. Like really, just like they really haven't haven't had it as good. And I'm, the crux about the Danforth and maybe about Toronto in general, at least on our east-west corridors, we've got a subway underneath as well. So you've got these added dividends of we just want everyone to be able to get to where they need to go. And if we can do that all to allow them to be safe, all it's done is just made many more people happier than the ones that are still curmudgeons and going those bikes why are they there and it's like well because we're part we're part of the community we're we are all people it's just we happen to take bikes to get around i transition back and forth between two communities sometimes three a couple times a year and that's the only time i have my truck out except to get dog food because my dog's on raw food and i don't have a cargo bike yet and every attempt that i've tried to bring dog food home on you know any of my bikes has been some spectacular failures but I find that once I'm in the truck and I'm on my way home, I'm leaving the dog food store. I am not interested in stopping anywhere else. I don't want to mm -hmm. park. I don't just, want, you know, I've got the dog with me. I can't leave him in the cart. But when I'm on the bike, it's so easy to just, I'll hop off and I'll go in the bakery. Hey, since I'm already here, I'm going to run into the deli. Oh, and I've got, you know, a birthday card I've got to get. So I'm just going to cross the street and go into, you know, yes. the card shop. It's so much more convenient. For sure. 
Oh, yeah. You know what? There, as much as I, not even as much as I, there is no, in my world of advocacy, I can't force someone to take a bike. I, and I would never in a million years do that. But I'd like to show everyone why having the option of not having to drive if you don't have to is such a good thing. Even if you were, you know, just a stone cold driver, I will never do anything other than, you know, hop in my car. You don't want me in a car. You don't want my friends. You want as many of us off of that street as possible to allow you to have a better because you don't want to be in part. You don't want to be in traffic. You don't want to be held up. You don't want to feel the anxiety of me riding my bike beside you and you now literally sweating buckets going, I don't want to kill this person. I don't want to hit this person. What am I like? You want me as far away from you as possible, but you want many more of us taking the option of, you know, hopping on a bike than having to deal with all of us, you know, driving around. Yeah. Yeah. And bike lanes increase property values. It's, it really is astounding as to, and I know, you know, just housing right now is expensive all over the place, but you can really see those peaks and valleys where if you've got a bike lane, if you've got something that's that's a protected piece of infrastructure that's close by, yeah, it's pretty amazing how many, you know, ticks upwards your property gets to knowing that I've got an option. I don't have to drive. And, you know, it also reduces noise in the space. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes, yeah. like you said, on the Danforth planters, we've got our main bike highway planters on either side. Additional right. green, you know, cools down the environment. It's much more attractive to look at. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and you know what? I mean, that's the thing about being on a bike, even walking a, as such. You see things. You actually get a chance to observe. When you're in a car, more times than not, it's to get from A to B. On a bike or walking, I get from A to like F <laughs> because I'm stopping at other places, I'll see a mural and I'm just like, I got to take a picture of this thing. And I hop on my, off my bike. I'm hungry. I'll stop off at a restaurant. I've got to go to the library and, you know, pick up some books or go to a bookstore and buy. Like there's so many opportunities for you to feel empowered and inspired to, to get off your bike and do something more. It's not just you racing to get from point A to point B. Let's talk about infrastructure a little bit. You know, in all of your many hats, sort of, you know, converging on similar topics, you have a lot of experience, thoughts and feelings on infrastructure. And I know your city, much like my city, patchwork, right? Some places are really brilliantly serviced yeah. and others are not. So, and it seems that areas that are not as well serviced in a lot of communities, not all, are economically marginalized communities. Mm -hmm. What are we doing to adjust the political will to change that? What are your suggestions? You know, I would really challenge our elected officials to get out of their cars, get out of their offices and, you know, understand COVID is still around, but I'd love for them to walk the streets. I'd love for them to hop on a bike and just See what it's like to come out of the apartment building that your residents are in with or without a child and see what it's like to get to the grocery store, see what it's like to get to the school, see what it's like just to get to, you know, the next bus stop. There is a huge disconnect. I will be very honest. I'm going to be talking more about my immediate ward. So here in Ward 14, we've got over 100,000 people. We touch the northern tip that we've got a massive highway that kind of just snugs Ward 14. It's called the Don Valley Parkway. And so that is on the northern tip, and it actually follows the Don River all the way into the Gardner Expressway that takes you downtown. So our word goes from the North Tip all the way to Lake Ontario. 100,000 plus people that live here. And our real sweet spot where uh, Destination Danforth is, that's Greektown. You move down just a little bit and you're in Leslieville. To the north and to the south are kind of considered our lower income areas. And it's surprising how little emphasis there is on making those areas as 
viable and accessible as are more prominent areas in in our ward. Again, very car centric, very we are car dependent a lot. And when it comes to our politicians making the case to give lower income areas a fighting chance that that they deserve the time, effort and investment, it's not there. That might be because, well, that's not where my votes are. So I'm not going to bother putting, you know, a whole lot of stock in there. It also, you know, comes to the fact that you've got the loudest NIMBYs being the smallest pockets of, of actual, you know, area making a, as much noise as possible to say, you, you can't make me go any slower or whoa, whoa, that painted line that we consider a bike lane that's now fading. Let's just leave that. There's no reason why we need to upgrade that to make it even harder for me as a driver to get to and fro. Political will really looks at how our elected officials brace and want to engage with the whole populace. And unfortunately, not having that political will really proves the fact that there's subsets of people that have our political reps ears, and it's not open to the rest of society, which is, it sucks, it's crappy. We as advocates, not just for cycling, but for many other aspects from housing to equity. I mean, we try and make as much noise as possible, but you're fighting an uphill battle continuously. And I know there are advocates at this longer than myself that have given up because it's just you're pounding on that same door and not getting anyone to answer. That all being said, I, I don't want to put into the headspace that you should give up. And even for myself being a uh, a 47-year-old, I've got two kids that are raring to go when it comes to advocacy. So, you know, in my little box, I know that they'll take up the mantle after myself and, you know, just working within the city that, that I live in, bringing in youth, bringing in young people's voices and giving them state is how I feel we can start to push our local and elected politicians to change because they've heard from me and they see me and then and I annoy them continuously. When you see a child making some noise as well and being able to articulate why they want to get to school safely, why they want to get to the park safely, why they want their parents to be able to get to work in one piece, definitely it makes people think. And at least in our case here, in Toronto Danforth. I mean, we've got a fantastic federal representative. We're still working on the on the local municipal, but you know, we're trying to make some noise. Yeah. So talk to me about 80. What are we what do we have to consider in terms of infrastructure for our elderly community members? I know my parents just this summer got e-bikes, which I'm excited because now, you know, as they are as they're getting older, they still mm they've got that additional sort of technology to keep them on the bikes and keep them going further afield. And, I've, and we've had a great time with them this summer, rolling around and now I can't keep up for the life of me. What sorts of things do we need to consider for the older folks in our community? Yeah, you know, that's a great question. And I think, and I look at my mom who isn't on a bike right now, but has just found out how amazing regional trains are. Uh, for her to be able to come down and see her uh, grandchildren. And she used to drive from Mississauga to Toronto and has just found out that she can walk to a GO train. We have what's called GO Transit here in Toronto, which combines uh, short haul trains and larger capacity buses to get you in and around the GTA. But yeah, so she's a believer right now in regional transportation. But when we're looking at, you know, people that are older and that want to be able to continue to be mobile. A lot of the infrastructure that we need to be looking at here in Toronto, and I'm sure in other big cities, is slowing things down. There is a, a factor that grows exponentially from you getting hit by a car at 30 kilometers an hour, which is kind of our halo. <laughs> we shouldn't even want to you know, have a baseline of how fast should you hit me? But let's just consider that 30 kilometers is you're hit by a car at 30. Your survival rate is, you know, in that 90% range. You get to 40 kilometers an hour and that drops to, you know, about 60. 
you get to 50 kilometers and we're rolling the dice and you go above that, the likelihood is you're not walking away, you know, at, at all. So slowing things down, a huge factor in making, making it safer for a senior to get around. There's also the consideration of making sure that your, how people navigate throughout the city is lit, that you have wayfinding. So you know where you're going, or at least know the places that you can go to. And it's not, you know, just putting a whole list, whack list of everything and anything, but it's really allowing for the rider or a pedestrian to understand that I'm starting from here. And, you know, if I wanted to go four kilometers to the east, that's the end piece. But here are a few other places that I can stop off at. The reason why that's so important is that we're missing a lot of places for people to sit and for places for people to kind of take that rest. It's if you look at many of our sidewalks, they're literally it's just a sidewalk. It's just pavement there's no adequate areas to just take a little rest and this isn't to you know try and say that seniors are slow or that they don't have the energy to continue but everyone needs a chance to you know just just take a break so but definitely for our seniors it's making sure that there are safe lit areas where they can recoup where they can you know just talk with one another and maybe the last little piece still talking about sidewalks is you want that space to to feel that you can have someone else with you and yes you can definitely get around wherever you're going you know solo you can do that but human beings were creatures that enjoy the company of others and even you know on a bike you like to be able to ride you know, beside someone. Same with sidewalks. You want that space and ability to have someone else with you. On the even flip side of that, if you are a senior and you are now using a mobility device, so you're not even on a bike, but you're on something that is going to roll, you also need that extra space on the sidewalk. So, you know, again, bright wayfinding, making the opportunity for people to rest, and definitely having a, a wide enough berth for you to be able to walk or roll safely to destinations is definitely a top priority to allow for people that are older to have good ability of being able to walk or roll within their neighborhoods and city. So your wife working in healthcare, I have a lot of friends in healthcare and mm -hmm. during the pandemic, a lot of them moved to commuting by bike, you know, safety reasons. It's their only opportunity to exercise with all the additional hours that they're doing, public transit, not necessarily servicing, you know, yeah. night shifts and stuff like sure. that. And I think everywhere, I know definitely my city, definitely your city saw surges in cycling. People needed safe ways to get out, yeah, to engage with each other, still maintain that space and be in the outdoors where there's, you know, fresh air and stuff. What advice are we giving to city planners to keep up with this surge? <laughs> it's not going away yeah you know it, and it's in for those first six months seeing the plethora of cycling opportunities open up so where my wife works it's called hospital row it's on university avenue it was always in the minds of our counselors to build a bike lane there but because of the lack of political will it never really came to be pandemic hits and it's like bingo we need to you know, take away a lane of driving and have this accessible piece there, especially knowing that we had thousands of healthcare workers that were not going to be on public transit. Likely, even if they, even if every single one of them had access to a car, there wasn't enough parking in all of these hospitals to be able to accommodate that. So huge, massive surge of cyclists. What I think at least in my opinion here in Toronto, what our planners saw was a vision of the future that they wanted to see continue. And, you know, knock on wood, it's still early days, two years after these implementations, but I think they are slowly building it out so that it's not a pilot piece. This is now infrastructure that sticks and that is going to stay. Yeah, it's such a, Toronto's notorious, we pilot everything. Everything needs to have that three months, let's test this out and see what it's going to, 
what's going to happen. And then double that amount of time for us to bring it back to council and to figure, should we keep it? Should we not? I think my advice to planners is in that interim, you're going to do the pilot nonetheless, but in that interim, it's not to rip it out. That's actually where you hold steady throughout the process of bringing it back to council, bringing it back to community consultation. Because as soon as you pull that piece out, you've almost, you're putting into the mindset that this was never a really good idea. And this was a temporary thing. And you lose the momentum of both your users and your advocates to say, we want more of this. We want to see it grow. We want to see it expand. Toronto, again, notorious for that patchwork, but it's because we have this notion of we're going to try something out. And while, again, in that transitional period, we'll pull it out just so that we can, you know, make sure all of the bugs are, let's, we have such, I'm jumping around here and I'm so sorry, but uh, in Toronto, and I'm quite sure in so many other towns and cities, we've got great planners. They want to build good things for the community. The tools and the talent are there. The What seems to happen more so than not is that they're limited in their scope. So if I'm only allowed to go these five blocks and I can see that all I need to do is connect to that additional block so that we can no, no, that's out of the purview. I'm sorry, you're, you got to stick to, we don't give them the latitude to to expand. I'm going to pull in, I'm going to pull in my second city background in the fact that second city here in Toronto, Chicago, in LA as well. Improv is this base of opportunity when you're on stage. You are given gifts where you don't have a script that you have to abide by. It's being able to say yes and. So as human beings, we're all about saying no. Even when you say yes, but it's basically no. Where you find the magic is when you start saying yes and. Yes and on stage allows the story to continue. When, it, when you're looking at it in infrastructure, especially when it's active transportation infrastructure, saying yes and allows for that not even incremental, but necessary want for this story to continue. So you want that bike lane to connect to the next piece. You want that additional width of that sidewalk to, to allow for more people to be there. You want that investment in public transit, not just to give you another bus stop, but hopefully another bus route to bring in another bus. You know, you're looking at, yes, ending as many facets of allowing for people not to have to get into a car. And I don't want to stress on the, you know, war on cars, or I don't want people driving. That's not even the point. It's how do you give more options to people not to have to be car dependent? And especially in the literal environment that we're living in right now, where, you know, greenhouse gases are just all you have to do is just, it's summertime here in Toronto and 40 degrees Celsius is deadly. And I'm not saying that literally just taking one car off the road is going to make that change, but this almost needs to be the mission for all cities is just give as many people options not to have to drive so that we can all benefit from that fact. Cycling has such a inherent plus when it comes to being the environmental champion of champions. And we just need cities to understand that investment is going to pay dividends, not just for the people here in 2022, but it's going to help in 2025 and 2030 and beyond. And you want that investment now. You need that investment now. Absolutely. We you know, where we are right now, it's going to be 100 degrees in a couple of hours. In my home city in Edmonton, Alberta, it's going to be, you know, very similar temperature at a later point this afternoon. So, you know, we're talking like high 30s. And these cities are not places where everyone has air conditioning. Everyone right. has access to cooling. This is deeply affecting people. We saw the, with the heat dome last summer, mm -hmm. people died. Yeah. And not just tens, we're talking hundreds. Siding melting off houses above the 40th parallel. <laughs> wild. This really will support our climate change goals. If we really believe in them, if our elected officials haven't just, you know, decided to tick a box, 
this just plays so well into combating the climate crisis that we're all in. And we're all in it. This is not just, you know, just environmentalists making noise. Like we're all in this predicament. So we've got to be making moves and making decisions that are going to help. So this surge of new cyclists, and I'm thrilled to see how many of them are keeping up with it. They've decided mm -hmm. it's changed their world. They've seen their cities in new ways. They've become tourists in their spaces and discovered yeah. things and they're sticking with it. How do we engage them to also abdicate for it? Yeah, that's a really good question. It is, it's tough. It's tough because it's tough because even though we're all within this cycling envelope, society is still what society is. And I say this as a, a black male on a bike, my voice is a bit different than a comparative person that's white on a bike. And it, it's not, not even to bring this up to get it messy, but to, to really you know, just say on a very practical level that as much as we have seen a larger amount of people being able to ride, it's who those riders are. And, you know, I just became the bicycle mayor of Toronto in the middle of the winter. Always a good time <laughs> <laughs> jump into the fray. But one of my, one of the key reasons that, that I was appointed as the bicycle mayor was to help promote and advocate for people that look like me to be on bikes and our voices how don't get amplified as much by by the larger cycling community is this racism i don't know is this prejudice i'm not sure but i can tell you that i don't hear a person that looks like me being able to talk about how important it is for them to have safe cycling infrastructure in their part of the city in their neighborhood to allow their child to get to school to allow their wife to get to work that does i don't see that on tv i don't hear it on the radio and it is definitely one of those pieces that i want to be you know really forward with so advocating for cycling is still in that two-tiered system you've got you've got amazing white allies that are there to to make sure that the amplification can get out but it is very real that we don't again hear or see a person of color being that amplifier and pushing that out so i mean it's a complicated there's an, i can't give you a good answer to it because it's still a complication of a lot of what just goes on in regular life and you know, they're here in Toronto, we were given the open data on the fact that our police force was systemically racist to black and brown people, not even something where it was, you know, we think, you know, when that cop is stopping me that it may have something to do with, you know, the color of my skin. We know it's there. We know that it is real. We've been saying it for many, many years, but now you literally have the data in front of you and you're just like, oh, right yeah that that might be problematic and that's you know that's the city at large that's my toronto not my toronto police service that's my toronto police force and that is a large piece of keep many people within the bipoc community outside of the fray of making noise about cycling because and i you know right off the top of our conversation we're vulnerable road users we really are it's uh, pedestrians on that same level if not worse but you know being on a bike not being in a protected cycling piece of infrastructure you are a target while being on that bike and you know, I don't even need to make up stories of being stopped by police officers on my bike because they didn't think that I was using my bell right. Or, hey, do, do your lights work? Or are they okay? And it's like, yeah, there you go. You, but nonetheless, you know, you're, you, you are a moving target when you're on your bike. So I can understand why making noise is is definitely not the first thing that a, a person of color is thinking, you know, while they're on their bike. They want to go shopping. They want to get to work. They want to go to school. They don't want to draw any more attention to themselves than necessary. And yeah. safety means very different things for different people, for different communities. As a woman on a bike, safety means a different thing to me. As a person of color, it means 
an entirely different thing and you layer all those things together. Yeah, it's, you know, there there is not, there isn't a kumbaya moment that that has come here in Toronto. Not yet, not in any significant piece. We are definitely, we're definitely siloed in many of the advocacy movements when it comes to cycling in the city. And that's not a detriment that is just how it is. You can also see that those silos are starting to break down and, you know, the collective momentum, especially with kids. And I, and, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to boast <laughs> about a, about a, the bicycle mayor and a good friend of the cycling community right now. We are doing what are called uh, kidical mass rides. My friend Robin and I are putting these together. So once a month, we're bringing parents and kids together to, to ride, to just be together and to kind of show, you know, what cycling together could be. We only started this last month. Totally thought that we'd have, you know, five, six kids with parents show up. We had 50 and it was beyond overwhelming. It was wonderful. We rode from the brickworks down in the valley of the Don River and we rode all the way to a area called Corktown Commons. It's a new wetlands that's being rehabilitated and it was exceptional seeing all of these little kids with their parents, like, come on, we got to go, we got to ride. But seeing all of these different kids of different races and different ethnicities and just that's the Toronto that I know is already there but it's not in one basket and we're finding a lot like I say we've got silos but they're starting to come down and people are starting to understand that this mass this critical mass of people can really make a difference in allowing for there to be a, a very equitable voice when it comes to being on our streets and being on our streets as people on bikes. You became bike mayor in the winter. <laughs> Tell me about winter cycling. Tell these folks that winter cycling is possible. <laughs> winter cycling is possible, but, uh, you know, in North America, we look at Europe as this pinnacle of, oh my gosh, they can ride all over 365 days a year, but we have snow. And I'm talking not about California or about Vancouver. I'm talking about, you know, the rest of us. And the wonderful thing about snow is that it's not a, it should not be a barrier if you have transportation departments that treat it as what it is. It's snow. You move it out of the way and you allow people to go. We do this for cars. We actually do this many times for people that are walking on sidewalks. There, there does not seem to be a reason why there's a disconnect to bicycle infrastructure. Last year, unfortunately, in Toronto, many of our bike lanes were used as places to remove snow from the, from the streets, and they basically dumped them into the bike lanes. And the crazy thing about this entire scenario is you have people that had to ride to work. So you ended up putting them all onto the streets that were thankfully cleared from snow, but now they have to mingle with all of these cars, which then, you know, it just there's more traffic because things are slowing down. And, you know, you have drivers going, well, why are you on the streets? And you, all you have to do is just point to that mound of snow over there. That's my bike lane. <laughs> And I'd love to be over there, but I gotta. So yeah, riding in the winter is not, and here in Toronto, we get two snowstorms a year, if that, and it really is kind of a 24 hour, it's blanketed. You let, you know, the city clean the streets and you're back at it. So, you know, three winter riding is not a deterrent, should not be a deterrent. You need to know how to dress. You need to know that the likelihood is you're going to have to slow down when you're writing just in case of black ice and whatnot. But beyond that, it's it can be a magical ride if you're just doing it for recreation, but it is totally possible to be able to commute. I, I also volunteer with an organization called the Bike Brigade. And so we deliver food for people across Toronto that are experiencing food insecurity. And I strap boxes of food once a week and do delivery in the winter and it's wonderful i mean 
people don't stop being hungry just because it's winter time. And in Toronto, unfortunately, we have so many people that are food insecure. So this organization allows for people on bikes to utilize their bikes all year round to deliver food to those that that need it and if we can ride around in the winter yeah the majority of the city can definitely put on a jacket and put on some boots and send a hat and get outside and do it it's it more times than not it's just the removal of snow it's just getting transportation in the habit of making sure that those bike lanes are as important as your sidewalks as important as a street to keep clear and keep safe So again, it comes down to advocacy and political will. Yeah. And I did say this before, just on the, you know, having our political reps walk the streets, hop on a bike and just see what it's like. And not just in the summertime, like come out in the winter, see what it really is like lacing up the boots and having to trudge through whatever it is that your constituents have to do as well and see the literal sights through their eyes to really get a understanding of what is stopping them from being able to get outside. Going back to climate change and initiatives that can move the needle, you are also a huge advocate for public transit. How we first sort of met on the internet was Jack's library tour. Oh gosh, yeah. Tell everybody <laughs> about the library tour. Oh, about the library tour. So Gosh, it's like five years, almost six years now. My son was five years old and I was working at Queens Park at the time and I brought home a book called All the Libraries T. Daniel Rodston had written this adult coloring book of all 100 libraries. And it's just a marvelous book where he sketched out all of the libraries across Toronto. Brought it home, showed it to my son, he's flipping through it. And he was already kind of a library junkie. We have a library close to our house. But he's flipping through and he's like, I'd like to go to this one. Happened to be one downtown, Fort York. We hop on a bus, take a streetcar. We go into the library, spend a good two hours in there, and we're done. That's great. Wonderful visit to a brand new library that I hadn't seen before. Daddy. Yes, Jackson. I want to see them all. And I'm like, what do you mean you want to see them? I want to see all of them. (laughs) 100 libraries in our city. It took us six months. I had to take off two weeks from work just to fit it into a vacation. We utilized public transit for 94 of the libraries. We walked to three and then we actually had to take a car to three as well just because my daughter was sick that day. But the majority was done by bus, streetcar, public transit, heck, Had we, had I even thought even longer about it, we probably could have taken our ferry to the Toronto Island to go and visit one of the bookmobiles on the island. But yeah, it was, it was such an eye-opening experience being able to get across the city by public transit. And one of the, and I'll call it a horror story, we had, how I broke up the tour is that I tried to, in one way or another, not allow Jack to just randomly pick where we were going to go. The first first three or four, that's exactly how it was. It was like, we can't do that. I need to figure out how we're going to get across the city. So one of our, one of our treks had us going north and south on a street called Jane. And Jane Street runs from Laurel, which is just under the midsection of the city, but it takes you all the way into the northern section past Shepherd in the city. And so we started the tour in an area called Bloor West Village, very posh, very nice. Walk down to the library. We take a bus to Jane and Dundas West, also very nice area. We stop off and have some pizza. I mean, we've basically just spent a good hour and a half out just relaxing and such. We need to now go to Jane and Black Creek. That was a two-hour experience getting, I don't know, maybe four kilometers. We had to wait for buses. We had to get off of one of the buses because there were too many people on them. We made it into almost this, it was a strip mall. This is where the library happened to be. Went into the library, got a great visit. It was wonderful. We come out and we're in a lineup of almost a hundred people. This is on a Saturday. We've got people with luggage. We've got people with laundry. We've got people with kids. It is 
pandemonium to try and get onto these buses. And it was another two hours for us to get up to Jane and Shepherd. We only visited four libraries that day, and it was almost an eight hour ordeal to get through all of this. And that those last two were the most stressful for me having this five-year-old that was just like, I want to see anything. I just take me home. Like this is, there's no fun in what we are doing right now, but it really did. It really opened my eyes to the, the necessity of public transit. Definitely people were using it. That, that was not in doubt. It was the fact that there wasn't an investment to have more buses on the route on a Saturday where clearly you could see that there was a need through the community to, we need this bus. We don't have a car. There are no bike lanes out there. This is pure suburbanite sections of the city that the public transit was their backbone and there wasn't enough infrastructure, not, not enough investment in that backbone to compensate for the amount of people that were using it. So had a lot of good discussions about that trek that we did. And I know that, you know, not just because of Jack's library tour, but I know that there has been ample amplification of how do we, if all we have is a bus route, how do we make sure that those bus routes are timely and that there is continuous investment in making sure that people aren't just standing. It was like one of these, you know, very hot days, 30 degrees outside, a water bottle is basically finished. And you've got a kid on the side that just wants to get to the next library. And I mean, you know, that was literally just our story. And there were hundreds of others going on that day that just needed to have their day continue, but had to wait for a bus to do it. So, but uh, overall, the tour, it took us six months, as I said, from bus, streetcars, subways, it was a phenomenal way of being able to see my city, to understand the significance of why public transit is such an equalizer, or at least it can be, and that more people should be utilizing it and, you know, shouting out loud how important its investment needs to be in a city of 3 million people where, yeah, not everyone can drive. Or not everyone should drive. And if you're taking your laundry, like that's an essential trip, right? right. On Saturday. Right. Yeah. That's, not, yeah. that's not a recreational trip. Oh, that needs no. to be addressed by the city that people can get, take care of their basic needs yeah. through public yeah. transportation. So I've, you know, I watched a number of talks that you've done of, you know, things that you were put out on video on Twitter. Lots of interesting stuff. What is something that you've always wanted to talk about, but you haven't had an opportunity? Oh, man. See, if you've seen my stuff on Twitter, you know that I <laughs> usually put out as much as possible. Um, you know what? I've been doing a little thing the past maybe six months or so. I'm really blessed. I've got a now 11-year-old Jack and... I have a newly minted teenager, a 14-year-old, in my daughter, Zoe. It's tough. <laughs> it's tough having a 14-year-old. It's tough having conversation with my 14-year-old. But I've been, I've been sharing some of the topics that Zoe and I get to at least, you know, have, you know, when she allows me to have conversations with her. I really want my Black daughter to understand how significant she is to the world. I want her to understand that this, the color of her skin, the texture of her hair, the manner that she speaks is extraordinary and elegant and necessary to how our little world and the world out there will be for her. And I want to give her as many, many examples of that. We are, we're a mixed family. My wife is white, but we are living very much in the mindset of the fact that we have two black children because they're mixed race it, it is definitely not something that that i can necessarily you know understand because society can be a bit rough but in our in the world that you know we're bringing our kids up in their black children and i want them to feel that they're beautiful and that they are necessary for our world to continue but yeah, so the conversations that I'm having with Zoe, I kind of put out three significant topics that that I think are worth amplifying. 
And, you know, at times she gets a bit embarrassed about, oh my gosh, you're talking about this or talking about that. And I don't put it out to embarrass her. I want to encourage other dads, other black dads that, you know, if you've got a 14 year old like me, it, it can be a bit, you know, harrowing as to, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? And so I pick out three, three topics of choice that, and it's not necessarily for, you know, for anyone to have to act or react to. It's if you think these are worthy of amplifying, go forth and learn a bit about the beautifulness of being black. And especially, and I say this as a man, especially for black women, having a voice for themselves and having that stage to be able to put forth ideas and examples and, you know, fun and tragedy and all of those pieces that make us human beings. I know that I believe it's hard for black women. And I know I cannot protect my daughter through thick and thin, but I'm just, I'm giving her tools. I'm giving her as many tools as possible. And this is kind of my little, you know, my little Sunday morning routine of like, Hey, we talked about these stuff. I want to share that with the world. So until she tells me absolutely, no, you cannot share it. I'll, I'll continue. <laughs> I love that. And my father was a black man who had a 14 year old black daughter at one point. So I lived it from the other side and I know that I didn't make it easy. So <laughs> good on you. <laughs> yeah. And just don't quit. Cause I can yeah. assure you as someone who was on the other side of those kinds of conversations, she is listening. I appreciate that. I, I may play that back for her just so that. <laughs> so what's next for you? What are you taking on under your bike mare mantle? Do you have any big bucket list objectives that you're taking off? Yeah, you know, I think I think right now we're going through an election period here in the city of Toronto. So I think in my volunteer world of being the bicycle mayor, it is making sure that the infrastructure that we need to to allow people that safe ability of getting to and from, I want to make sure that's part of the political conversation. And it's not just, hey, you're a biker, so, you know, I should listen to you. Cycling, bicycling in general, we, many people understand its significance in so many of the pieces of what is going to make our city go forward. Whether you're looking at accessibility, whether you're looking at equity, whether you're looking at the environment, you know that being on a bike in a city like the one that we have here, it's essential that these infrastructure projects and pieces are not just built, but that they are, I love using just copy and paste. And literally it is. What we've done on the Danforth, please just go put it up on Eglinton. And if you've done it on Eglinton, easily enough, we can do it on Finch. And, you know, we've got a beautiful street called Shaw Street. And this is a a testament in the fact that it's like four kilometers. It's some pieces are one way. Some of them are like completely only a bike can go on, but it's just this linear path of beauty through this neighborhood where you can be on a bike, regardless of your age and you can get from top to bottom and you're just like, Oh my gosh, this is wonderful, but there are not enough connections going the other way. So it's like, how do I copy that, put it somewhere else and just grow the grid a lot. So that my political junkie side will definitely be talking a lot about cycling infrastructure. I think the other piece is we, four years ago, I ran for city council and in the midst of the election, the rules were changed and the ward that I was representing doubled in size. And so I went from a ward 36 to this larger ward 14. Of course, I didn't win. But a lot of the learnings four years ago about how new candidates get into, into this political sphere, I'm already talking with many new candidates now just giving advice and giving opportunities to, to just talk about how crazy it is that you are taking you know, you're taking on an incumbent or, you know, you're in a ward that is that has no incumbent. How do you balance your life? 
How do you balance the opportunity to be able to represent all of these people? What could it be like being a, a counselor? So I'm talking with so many wonderful and awesome and inspiring individuals that are putting their hats into the ring to, to represent the city. And that's a lot of fun. That's, it makes me feel really proud to see that, especially being that many of them are people of color is a phenomenal testament to just the power of, of being in a, in an area right now where you want engagement, you need that engagement and city council has been very just a static piece. And the people that at least that I'm being able to tag into are, they want to make noise and I'm going to try my very best to amplify that noise to everyone that wants to hear it. So those are my two things, both in the political realm, but one, you know, clearly on the infrastructure piece, one on the civic engagement piece, which I think are, those are important pieces. Those are brilliantly important pieces. Absolutely. <laughs> How do our listeners find you? Uh, so the best way, the way, at least on social media, so that you don't get too bogged down with my personal stuff is at bicycle mayor. And it, it is definitely a lot of amplification Toronto centric. We do you know, tweet about things that are going on around the world, but definitely that is the place to to find out how our cycling world is evolving and changing and the opportunities that are coming here in Toronto. Yeah. Incredible. And listeners, you're going to find those links and links to a lot of the other stuff we talked about on the show notes for this episode. This was brilliant. I am so happy we finally had a chance to link up. I am too. And I was saying this to you off camera. I mean, I've listened to the podcast. I've been following your work. It is this, these types of connections. And I said this to you, seeing someone that looks similar to who I like that. I love that. And we've got to do more of that. We've got to be able to push that amplification out where we can find each other and know that we're out there and know that there are many others that are out there. And this is black people that I'm talking about and not in the ethos here. This is black people that are out doing amazing stuff in the world. And I want to be able to talk to them and amplify them. And hopefully if they like what I'm doing, they're amplifying what I'm doing. So yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much. No problem. Thank you. That is it for this episode. Thank you everyone for joining us. Links on where to find Landrec are available on the show notes at BIPOCoutside.com. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did having it. And if you did, don't hesitate to smash the like button. I hope you'll find us again on another episode of BIPOC Outside.